All right, I am now joined by uh, Slavoj Žižek. Thank you so much for coming, Slavoj. It's an honor for me. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. So, uh, so you have, I should, I should say, before we we go any further, uh, you've actually at this point written uh, two books uh, about the uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is the first one. The second one still hasn't come out yet. Uh, and I heard you, I remember uh, you were on uh, Mike Kilf Brooks show um, back in the, uh, in the spring and you made a kind of maybe half joking comment about how the way that governments had to coordinate and societies had to respond to it was with war communism. Uh, and you know, it wasn't a total joke. Okay, it wasn't a total joke. So that's what I want to get into. So no, 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 sorry. Not that there is, this was part of a joke. It wasn't a joke in the sense that I simply mean it serious. In what sense? Can I go a little bit into half theory? Uh, many Marxists or even half Marxists Adorno pointed out that the crucial dialectical category of Marx is tendency, like when Marx speaks about tendential fall of profit. It doesn't mean profits will really fall, the rate of profit. It means this is the general tendency, and even if what effectively happens, it's the opposite. Profits go up and so on. It's because the system reacts against this threat. And in a similar way, I think that if there is a lesson from COVID, is that even our enemies admit it, a tendency towards something like communism. For example, everybody admits it. We need to global, we need to universalize healthcare. We need to coordinate it internationally, internationally. We need to limit the market. This is why, if I may improvise a little bit, sorry, my this is why I wonder if you would agree with me. Please interrupt me at any point you want. Okay. This is why I'm getting sick and tired, although my model is not a Chinese one, of this. Whenever people mention that the Chinese did it, get under control the COVID, they add, yeah, but what price they paid, you know, like limiting human freedoms, whatever. I agree, but nonetheless, the Chinese did it, and the key factor was two things. First, as it is clear, even you remember when Trump uh, recorded an interview with Bernstein or who, and he even said that, that the Chinese President Xi already in January or when warned Trump that this is a deadly serious thing. So the Chinese took this crisis absolute after the first weeks of the usual communist in power oscillation, you try to cover it up. But then they, when it became obvious what is happening, they immediately took it extremely seriously. And, you know, they didn't say, but our economy cannot sustain this market and so on. My God, they put almost the entire country into a lockdown. They were not bluffing. How do you know? You remember all those satellite photos of how uh, uh, the air pollution, the clouds disappeared, and so on and so on. Why did this happen? I don't want to repeat that form. But because, nonetheless, Communist Party 
is was strong enough to say, okay, market is nice, it works, competition, but sorry guys, now things are serious, we should suspend it. And they did, in this sense, the right thing. They had a lockdown for what, one month and so on, and now they are reaping the reward. Economic boom again. But I what I found so fascinating is... Go outside without masks. Sorry? You said yeah, something. People, people in Wuhan can go outside yeah. without masks yeah. and have yeah. parties. Yeah. Do it the Chinese way, exactly. It's not even necessary. Take Taiwan, which is definitely not communist. But let's look at the few success stories. I will not talk about New Zealand because they are lucky, the guys there. They are an island and so on. But look at Vietnam, even Cuba, one has to admit it, you know. Taiwan, Chinese don't want to hear that. Uh, so what I mean is that it is possible, my God, to... And what I even read in some American uh, uh, business institute, totally pro-capitalist, they said strike with full lockdown when the numbers are still low. Chinese numbers are ridiculous compared to our numbers now. But Chinese, all in all, had less numbers, much less than you in the United States get in one day now and so on. So it's crucial, this some kind of social control over economy, global healthcare, and so on and so on. Whatever you call it, these are, this is a tendency, everybody admits it, to some kind of communism. And what I'm saying, what I wanted to say is that all what is happening now, I found almost more disgusting than Trump's basically return to normality, this great reset idea, you know, which is they, like the guy called Chris Galloway, who, who did the bestseller for New York Times, no? He gives, I was fascinated by his self-description. I didn't read the whole book. He gives a quite correct situation that earlier we had uh, we had one to four, 20 to eight cent rich versus the poor. Now the rich, is, the wealth is concentrated into three uh, percent. Middle class, uh, we know the story. But then, what's his solution against egotism and for love and empathy? How do you translate this? I think it's this new corporate masters like uh, Bill Gates and so on, and they are very important. They signal. Would you agree or not the change in today's capitalism? Because on the one hand, I've written about this a lot years ago, they for me, one has to be very clear here, maybe I'm economically wrong, but it seems to me the most obvious proposal, that people like Bill Gates, they didn't become as wealthy as they are because of the classical profit. It's not that Bill Gates exploits his workers more and so on. It's rent, I think. Right. Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, they privatize what Marx called part of our commons. We are probably talking now through some Microsoft, uh, Microsoft software and so on. We order books and so on, many other things now through Amazon. If you have personal message through Facebook and so on and so on. So we, it's, it's 
Paradoxically, a return from profit to rent. Marx described the process of first it was rent. For example, a landlord, you worked, you paid him rent. Then it was a commodification of working for uh, profit. Now we are returning to then, and this is to profit and sorry to rent. And this, I think, is what is uh, uh, is crucial today to understand again these new figures, which are even I agree with some people who said almost figures of new 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 corporate wisdom it's not only about covid everything you want to know there is always somebody like uh, not so much jeff bezos as bill gates and so on somebody like that to to give some wise comment and so on and so on they are our new aristocracy as somebody said and i think this is maybe the most dangerous version this new form of capitalism, the Great Reset, where, if anything, the, the, the opposites, the, the concentration of wealth, the opposite between the wealthy one and the poor one, is, is growing, but it's crucial that this is or presents itself as what? You know, when I was young, we all dreamt about uh, socialism with the human face. Now we are getting capitalism with the human face. Bill Gates, the greatest humanitarian. But do you remember when Elizabeth Warren, she was not as radical as uh, Bernie, but nonetheless, when she proposed a tax plan, which would have implied a very modest rise yeah. of taxes, right. Bill Gates immediately protested. Oh my God, this is no longer capitalism and so on and so on. You know, this is, I think, the greatest threat. The big reset which is not really what is needed is these guys like bill gates they are not stupid you know bill gates even had a debate with piketty you know this i did not know that and, yeah and said i agree in many things with you and so on so they they even at some point bill gates and i don't know who close to him define themselves as some kind of socialists, you know, socially. But if you look at it closely, it's not real socialism. It's just social responsibility of the truly wealthy and so on and so on. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, because I guess this gets down to what I was asking with the war communism question. Uh, Obviously, just capitalism plus, you know, social responsibility isn't socialism. But when you talk about what we actually do need or the level of control over over the economy that we need. I'm thinking here, for example, of an article that you wrote a couple of years ago after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was elected, where you said, of course, we should support these democratic socialists, but it's ultimately not radical enough. What we need is communism. And so I, I'm hoping now it's possible here that, you know, my academic background is an analytic philosophy. So one of the dangers of that is that oh, really? I Really? Really? So it don't trap you. Who are your great guys? Whom did you like in analytic philosophy? You remember she now disappeared from the scene, but naming and necessity, the of Sol Kripkit, even David, Donald Davidson was not bad. I have to just to dispel its misunderstanding as a Hegelian. I I I like some type of analytic philosophy, I must say. 
they they can be very very in no way have I this standard European arrogance, you know, they are too positivist, they don't know how to reflect on things and so on and so on. No, okay, sorry, I interrupted. Well, yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, I was going to say, though, I think one of the, uh, you know, possibly as an effect of that background, it's possible I'm being too pedantic and literal here, but I mean, I, I, you know, when you talk about, you know, communism or, you know, we need this more radical break, uh, you know, <laughs> since, since you, you know, since you said earlier, of course, right, obviously you don't advocate like the, uh, you know, the Chinese model. And I think we can probably all agree that the the version of economic planning that, that existed in Eastern Europe and other places in the 20th century. Uh, that's over. Yeah, that's over. 20th century is over in the sense that that vision, that vision of communism, either it's alive in this pure historical curiosities, Relics like North Korea, even Cuba, although, wait a minute, Cuba did pretty well with COVID, you know. Very well, but they only had 100, you know, I mean, look, in Ingham County, Michigan, where I'm from, there are 242,000 people and about 128 uh, COVID deaths. Cuba has 10 million people and only eight more than that, 136. So, and you you can say, oh, Cuba's an island, but Puerto Rico's an island and they've had terrible COVID rates. So, yes, but uh, you know what I heard from friends who knew Cuba? You know what they did? You remember if you, I was in Cuba totally private visit, but I looked into it. You know, they they had what they call these uh, infamous committees for the defense of the revolution. They control each of these committees, a couple of blocks, like if there's some dissident activity and so on. But now they use them in a very nice way to simply look over their domain and ask, so is there some old person there who needs help? Let's control and so on. And it's a very important lesson against the Chinese model. You need local control and initiative. I'm not a believer just in state, stronger centralized state. State has to be supported from beneath by local communities and absolutely by stronger international cooperation. So, all this, for me, points against why communism, it's not just a joke for me to provoke people. Because, you know, don't you think that uh, uh, socialism is, okay, United States is a special case where yeah. socialism was prohibited till now. And that's what I like with Bernie and AOC and so on. If nothing else, they rehabilitated the term socialism. You are not immediately an outcast, you can use it. But I still have a problem in the sense that, you know, even Gates said, hinted that maybe in some sense he's a socialist. Socialism in today's moralistic age, is, isn't it more or less a term for some kind of social solidarity, uh, cooperation, openness, and so on. So, you know, like, you, you, the system remains the same, but you just uh, do it with a more human face. Right. So that's my limit. But in practical, pragmatic, political terms, I, of course, uh, I, of course, agree with it. And why, on the other hand, you know why I like to use the word provocative, I know, communism. 
indicates a real change, mm. radical change. And I think here, it's not, that's why I use the term war communism. Yeah. It will not be that happy polymorphous almost perversity that Marx imagined. It, there will be harsh times ahead. My God, I'm not taking this from some left lunatic, so-called. The more we learn about what experts are saying to different governments, like now we learn that two years ago, some group of experts wrote a memo to prime minister, I don't think it was even already Boris Johnson, about what are the threats. Two years ago, or three even, yes. And they explicitly named virus as the first danger, the second one, global warming. And then way after all the China, Putin, or whatever, all that. So I think we are entering a much longer emergency period. It will not be now we get all vaccinated and then the summer will be normal. We don't even know how all this vaccination will function. There are already other strains of the virus, not to mention the real horror. I mean, uh, global warming, its effects. I think the way it looks now, if nothing else, it will come to tremendous large movements of the population. You know, millions will have to resettle. How to do this without war? In the past, this did happen, but usually through war, you know, you invaded another territory when yours become cannot be habitated. But I think that today with uh, nuclear weapons and so on, we simply cannot afford this. So if I just very coldly and rationally look at our global situation with the view that it's not just COVID, mm. crisis will go on, Something for which I like to use the term communism, I allow others to use another term, which especially means practical global solidarity, not this abstract humanitarian type. But yeah, so, so, liberation, uh, so, social control over economy and so on and so on uh, and will be necessary. And again, that's my point. It's a tendency. Those in power somehow, at least, feel it and I think even ultimately even Trump is a reaction to this. He saw not as a conscious moment of planning, he saw new forms of despair, poverty. He guessed well the alienation from so-called ordinary people of the uh, democratic establishment and he entered the scene with his type of populism. That's why now a confession to our viewers and especially to you. Okay. Sometimes I enjoy looking at that um, uh, 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 America war, war, Steve Bannon's podcast, because oh, yes. it's a big lie, of course. But to sustain his lie, he nonetheless points to many quite pertinent facts, you know, like he said that it doesn't really matter Obama-Trump, that even under Obama, 
this tendency of corporate centralization, rising poverty, and so on, went on, and so on, and so on. This is, as I always repeat, the most dangerous by our enemies, the new populist left, and so on. It's not when they lie. It's when they sustain their lie by partial truth. Yeah, I often, unfortunately, relate to our everyday experience. I talk too much. Please go on. Well, I was actually going to say that last part reminded me, uh, you know, one of the books behind me is uh, is one that I, I co-wrote with Conrad Hamilton, Matt McManus, and Marion Trejo that you wrote an introduction to. Uh, that's uh, Myth and Mayhem. And I remember in the introduction to that book that you wrote, you said um, – uh, you said the same thing about Jordan Peterson that the dangerous thing about him, you know, was 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 that part of what he said was true, and you know, and, and that that helped to, uh, uh, you know, like that uh, that that he was more dangerous, you know, because of those truths, you know, that, that he was mixing in. But as far as Bannon goes, uh, I would like I think that Bannon certainly points to a lot of actual problems. Yes. I think it is remarkable how thin his his solutions are right so like for so there's a uh, there's a podcast called red scare that had steve bannon on as a guest a few months ago and a lot of people were very upset at them for having him on because they're Is this the two girls from yeah 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 that's the one right and so lots of people were very angry at them for you know for giving a platform to this horrible yeah, yeah. but this the thing is I loved it, right? I remember Michael Brooks pointed this out mm -hmm. at the time because it was a great interview because they, instead of just sort of yelling at him for being a bad person like most people do, they yeah. asked him a really simple question, which was, uh, you say you're a populist. Why don't you support Medicare for all? And and it you know he, it was just so obvious that he didn't have a good a good answer to that right you know because so much of his rhetoric depends on all of this stuff about very real things about corporate power and economic yeah, power. Yeah, yeah. but but his the policy solutions you know aren't really there he says uh, oh you know he wants to deconstruct the administrative state which sounds sort of scary and sort of radical and oddly it's kind of a scary scary Derrida Derrida returning as a monster it's like what does that actually mean that deregulation doesn't mean you know it's, it's it's at the very least it's very unclear to me but as far as your your long-term solutions go right so you said you want you know you like you prefer the word communism because socialism has been defanged you talk yeah, but about I'm, I'm flexible here I think people, the message should get to people that it's not a joke. It's, you know, I, I, that's one of the few moments when I wouldn't say I liked Trump, but I felt, although with that person, I don't think he has really an ego, a self-decent yeah. personality. But, you know, when you could hear, you know, Bernstein, when he, uh, he even played that recording, how you could feel that Trump was really impressed when he, the Chinese guy, uh, told him, sorry, this COVID, this is not a joke. It's damned serious, you know. So uh, here I agree totally with you to avoid a misunderstanding. Okay, one good thing I'm ready have to say for Steve Bannon is that but then he made a compromise immediately. You remember before the elections or, and before he was uh, thrown out of the White House, yeah. he nonetheless, one must say, he advocated raising taxes to 40%. Yeah, that yeah. was yeah. one. But on the other hand, when he says under Obama, concentration of wealth went on, well, okay, but even more under Trump, 
Okay, Trump did elements of, under quotation marks, socialism, basically already some version of universal basic income, giving these checks and so on and so on. But, you know, it's obscene how most of the money to support business and so on to survive went to big corporations, often on a political basis, went even... Some of my Catholic friends in the United States laughed when they learned, did you know that Trump gave 800 millions to the Catholic Church to survive the COVID? And my friend said, this is wonderful. We will now be able to repay all that we owe people for pedophilia cases. (laughs) So, no, it's absolutely a lie. I know. But obviously, and again, sorry if I repeat myself, I wasn't... I've often uh, wrote uh, uh, about this, but uh, 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 Bernie Sanders saw this clearly. Our, more than this typical Biden obsession, who will cover the, the center? We should occupy the center. No, let's not move too much to the left, we will scare the center. We should at least here learn things for, from Trump, don't you think? Trump did exactly the opposite. And he even consciously alienated much of the Republican establishment. And we should learn the same, I think. That the way, that's why, among other things, let's not go into it in detail, Hillary won. Hillary lost, sorry. She was obsessed precisely by this. That's why, if you ask me, I worry very much about the future. I, I'm not against uh, Americans as people. It's a great nation. They did, my God. How can you hate a nation which produced great Hollywood classics and writers like Daphiel Hammett uh, or uh, Ray, Raymond Chandler and so on, you know? But uh, Trump will screw up things so much and leave behind problems that how will Biden cope with it? I hope they will succeed somehow to prosecute Trump or whatever. Because I, I think so. I mean, like it, it, it seems like we we never you know prosecute uh, former former presidents who have committed crimes. I mean, Nixon. Yeah, no, I, I said I hope. No, I don't believe. <laughs> okay. I think it's a minimal chance. Although this is, you know, I wrote a text which was very marginalized, but you know, now I love this as a philosophical problem. This. I connected it to that barber paradox, you know, which was already used by Russell, you know, how a barber who shaves only people who don't shave themselves, can he shave himself? Whichever way you turn it, you are in a paradox. And I tried to apply the same on Trump. A president who pardons other people, can he pardon himself? (laughs) But it's... uh, The sad thing is... And you may disagree with her, but here she made the point, Angela Nagle, no? Mm-hmm. The thing she said, nonetheless correctly, I think, is how this new populist right, they behave in the form of their behavior, not content. They behave in this pseudo-subversive way as once the radical left did. And here, now, what to do? You will probably not agree, but my crazy solution is what if we adopt, or at least to a point, the language of moral majority? 
Mm. No, not that, Nixon moral majority. Look, when I had that unfortunate debate with Jordan Peterson, and afterwards I spoke with him for a couple of minutes, and he admitted to me privately that there he doesn't have a good answer to my point. I said, okay, tell him, Jordan, okay, you are against postmodern historicism, relativism, irony, and so on. Wait a minute. Trump is the absolute postmodern historicist relativist president that you have. Right. You know, it's typical Trump's answer to one of those right wing groups who call for violence. No. They ask him uh, what's his stance towards them. And he said, no, they love America and they like me. That's what matters to me. He didn't even enter, you know, this topic. But is it right what they are saying. So I think that I would risk this. It's a risky move, I know. But to say, sorry, we understand you if you are an ordinary, even Christian guy, believer. Sorry, no, Trump is the ultimate relativist, decadent, postmodernist. And that's what I like about Bernie. If there ever was a common, decent person, it's him, you know. And this is an important element. I think this is also why, for some time, Jeremy Corbyn was doing well in the United States. Now, this was totally, it's here, a state school against him in the Labour Party. It's horror what happened there, you know. But what I want to say yeah. is that I would shamelessly address also this, what Nixon called... Uh, uh, silent moral majority. Yeah. Bernie knows this. It's crucial to get them, to tell them that no, this new right, Trump, these are the true nihilistic postmodern decadence or whatever. So I think there's morality in, in two two senses, right? So one one is like being like moralistic policing of individual behavior, which I kind of think we have too much of on the left. And I think that especially with the pandemic, you know, some of the obsession with like yelling at people for not wearing masks and things like that is probably unhelpful. But then uh, then the other part is is moral critique of, of institutions, saying it's morally outrageous that there are people who lose their health insurance during a pandemic, that there are people who are hopeless. And I think Bernie Sanders is very good at that, at, at, at sort of channeling that moral outrage at the um, – you know, at the workings of the American economy. Yes. And this is what I would call effective critique of ideology, that uh, we have an outrage, but <clears throat> how we experience this outrage depends yeah. on ideology, how we channel it. Here it's the here it's the key trouble, which is why again, as people wrongly think, my problem with political correctness, it's not it's moralism, it's that it's a fake, false moralism, you know, this apparent extremism. It's just a cover for very compromising stance when you really look at the details. For example, I've written about it, you know, which is for me the most disgusting example. You remember how easily a big co corporate company, when they catch some of their usually minor or mid-level executives, making a racial slur or whatever, sexist remark, with all the pomp in the media, they discharge him and so on and so on. And what then? They nominate another guy and then the same system goes on. 
in the same sense, there is something like, I call it ironically, in a very brutal way, corporate feminism, you know. They think that all that matters is that, okay, we name to the top position a couple of women. Nice, but the system remains the same. It, this, is where, this is where we should uh, refocus, in a way, you know. And again, I think that for me, precisely what many people perceive as a danger, new populism and so on, and even this panic with Bill Gates and so on, now everybody wants to be some kind of a soft humanitarian socialist. It is a panic on their side. They are aware that the tendency is towards some kind of, I call it, sorry for the term, communism, although, uh, again, yeah. it is in Marxian sense a tendency. It may yeah. provoke a Marx, Marx says the same. The, the actual effect of the falling rate of profit may be that the reaction to it will be so strong that the profit rate will even raise more. I mean, Nothing yeah. is predetermined here. Yeah. I, well, okay. So first of all, just a parenthetical note. I uh, was uh, happy and surprised to hear you mention the uh, uh, Barber Paradox. I actually, uh, you know, you asked me about this earlier. My my uh, my PhD dissertation was actually about logical paradoxes. So that's that's uh, that's man and me. But uh, uh, but uh, but as far as really? oh my god, did you print it? Uh, no, it's actually being adapted into a book that might come out next year. I, I can send it to you if you want. But more to our topic, so that we don't lose time. You know what interests me? What okay. was your basic? So I hope you didn't buy a Russian solution, which no, is no, no, no. through this classification into different levels, you can get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, which which actually I liked. Uh, there's a uh, there's actually a graphic novel called Logic Comics about Bertrand Russell and Russell's paradox and all of that. And there's a good line in there where they're talking about Russell's theory of types and they explain it by using yeah. the Barber paradox. And they say that uh, you imagine a caste system where people can only shave people in the caste above them, and you'd have a very hairy uh, lowest caste. But no, I didn't. Uh, I, I don't buy that. I think that um, you know I. I mean, I, th I think basically that you can have like different versions of set theory that uh, that don't, um, you know, that have different axioms and uh, and none of them are actually describing something that that really exists. Uh, but in any case, I'll, I will I will send it to you. Okay, I, don't sorry, yeah, yeah. I don't, don't want to get too far off, but yeah. as far uh, but but the reason I was asking about communism wasn't really about what we call it. wasn't really about terminology, but about. You know, I know, of course, that, that Karl Marx famously said that he didn't want to write uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future. And I think I understand why he said that. But I think that uh, heretically, I, I do disagree with Marx about this. I think we need to write recipes for the cookshops of the future. Very good point. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm always a bad guy. If I, I'm a leading oh. part of the paradox. <laughs> you know why it's important to say this? Because uh, people praise this as you see Marx was not a dogmatic and so on. I'm almost, almost, it will be very brutal, but say, uh, tempted to say, yes, that's why uh, we have Stalinism then, you know, because Marx left it so abstract. But one thing to say for Marx, uh, 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 nonetheless, uh, none uh, he was not uh, naive here. He was open to history, for example, Many subtle readers of Marx noticed that till the Paris Commune, 
was much closer to a traditional centralist notion. Strong state is in, at the end of the Communist Manifesto. A strong state will centralize bank, will, uh, will uh, nationalize banks, big industries. And Marx was, in a positive sense, surprised, shocked by the Paris Commune. He said, my God, this is the first time this new forum. And although Lenin then changed his position, but you know, when he wrote... Not only state and revolution, but even in the first month of Alain Badiou told me this wonderful detail of uh, October Revolution, uh, I think that Paris Commune was in power of Paris, of course, for two months. You know what Lenin did? It was winter of 1917, uh, I, I think it was in December, already January, when the uh, Soviet power survived longer, one day more than Paris Commune. Lenin went out and danced on the snow there. Like, you know, much more than I don't know what, he considered himself the heir of the Paris Commune. But it's very important what you said. I think this problem with uh, Marx, um, it's not just a simple failure. Many theoreticians, pro-Marxists, but critical of Marx, notice that I really, Balibar has shown this and others, that Marx didn't have a good, proper theory of political power, authority, how do these things reproduce themselves. And that's, we know more than ever, sorry, we know we need today. Because here, I think, as I write in my volume two of Pandemic, which you can order it, but only a sprint of demand. It will be out in a month or two in bookstores. Uh, uh, you know, usually we had leaders with dignified masks, and then you have obscenities behind the mask, and so on and so on. But Trump introduced a new logic where, you know, we don't need a child who says the emperor is naked. Trump proudly displays right. his own nakedness. Right. And the mystery is, nonetheless, he retains his authority. Right. And this is what we should analyze, how authority can survive this radical, how should I call it, disablimation or whatever. How leaders today can even make fun of themselves and so on, appear ridiculous. It even strengthens sometimes their executive power. We have new forms of authority today. It's no longer the traditional authority, and it's typical how <coughs> in the West we went further here. Well, Chinese remain classic here. Yeah, so, you know. so, so I do want to get back to the communism question, but I think what you yeah. just said is interesting because um, it seems like in Trump's case, really actually a lot of his connection with followers is his followers is based on this the, their impression that he's just giving this constant stream of consciousness you know expression of his thoughts and he's often openly extremely petty and 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 i think that all of that seems to make them identify with them that much yeah. more because they feel like they have some kind of human connection with him yeah well, what, you know it's important here that when direct charismatic, or not even charismatic, this classical dignified authority began to disintegrate, we get experts. We get people who 
say, no, it's not me. I'm just telling you what science or economy or whatever or the law tells me. And now this repressed dimension of the master is returning with a vengeance with people like Trump, who is no longer the old master with some dignity. And here I agree, maybe you will not agree with me, with a figure like Alain Badiou. Sorry, with Alain Badiou, who pointed out that let's not dismiss masters generally. Sorry, what was Nelson Mandela is not a great master figure. What was Gandhi is not a great master figure. And I still believe that there is an authentic, I try to describe it in some of my books, an authentic figure of the master who is not telling you what to do, but in a way, that's how you experience an authentic master through him, through his inspiration, you discover what you really want. And that's what great masters do. Okay, with Mandela, it didn't end well. It was clear, although it was that no, he okay. had to do that compromise. It, it, although, it, didn't, it didn't, right? I mean, the, the end of apartheid is one of the great victories for human freedom in you know, the 20th century, but they also had to compromise on all of their economic programs. Yeah, but they're paying the price now. You know what? I am afraid that now that economic situation is getting, it's not a total catastrophe, but a little bit worse in South Africa, that they will fall into the Mugabe trap. Mm -hmm. Instead of changing the system, let's blame the white, but keep their own new wealthy class untouched. Because my friends are telling me in very simplified terms, in South Africa, Basically, what happens happened is only that the old white ruling class was joined by a new black ruling class, while the majority of black people remained more or less at the same level of standard of living. Okay, more freedom, no direct racist op uh, oppression, but don't underestimate this. Much more crime, violence, and so on and so on. And here, I just think again that uh, expertise is not enough. You need an inspirational figure of a master. We, and from here, we should attack Trump. The problem of Trump is not that he's a master, but that he's a clownish, ridiculous comedy of a master. I don't know who a good analyst wrote, I quote somewhere, that uh, Trump is not a dictator. He's somebody who plays dictator on TV. <laughs> Except, no, well, I, remember, I remember Matt Taibbi had a great line when, um, a, you know, a few weeks ago when a lot of liberals were um, were fainting about the idea that Trump was gonna was gonna have a coup. You know, there was a point where like he got yeah. Fed Secretary Mark Esper and people were saying, "Oh my God, he's staffing the Pentagon with his personal loyalist." Is gonna yeah, yeah. And Matt Taibbi said. Uh, you know, it's not the, uh, that Trump would morally object to a coup. It's that two minutes into planning it with his generals, he would get bored and wander off and have a burger and watch TV. And and that that seems, you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. you know. But. You see, that's why, although I don't underestimate the danger of Trump, I never liked this quick, short-circuit Trump fascist. It's a totally different structure. You never get a fascist which openly behaves in such an obscene way, making fun of himself and so on and so on. It's another type of authority. It's, uh, I also 
Don't think my uh, uh, Israeli friend Yuval Kremnitzer uh, uh, developed this nicely. How I don't think that Trump really wanted to overthrow democracy. He, it's true, he did seed distrust into established ritualized democracy. He did flirt with this people power, people's power, not ritualized uh, election, all the committees, procedures. But nonetheless, he never made this step of, okay, let's be a fascist and really take power, because I don't think he really had a determinate plan. He just, he lived in this in-between area of uh, 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 of uh, 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 criticizing the corruption of the system, like, and here he sometimes almost sounded as a kind of a leftist, you know, our democracy is not really representative and so on and so on. But he never really wanted to overthrow it. I didn't think, I don't think he had this uh, potential, if you ask me. Do you think no, 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 no. I, I don't think he did at all. In fact, I don't even think that when he ran for president the first time, uh, I, I don't think that he, uh, I don't think that he particularly even wanted to win. I, I think that he, uh, I think that that he wanted to be in the spotlight. He, he you know, he probably wanted to yeah. get, uh, you know, to get better TV deals and so on, and that uh, and that he was enjoying the the experience. But I mean, he he didn't. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. I think he was more surprised than anybody was when he won. But I want to bring on uh, Amber. Amber. Oh, hi. Uh, Hello. You hear us? You okay? Yeah. I can. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's um, time that we would be accused without you, Amber. We would be accused of some kind of a male binary patriarchal logic. You know, we need. We need. Well, you. I just got here. We'll see how it goes. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. You want to brutally intervene? Absolutely. That's the only way to Please. intervene. Sorry? It's the only way to intervene, brutally or not at all. That's a nice Marxist lesson. I see that Marxism is not lost in the United <laughs> States. Thank you. Uh, so you are the boss, Ben. You yeah. direct uh, us now. Yes. All right. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I do, I do actually want. And by the way, Slavo, I, I hope you come back because in a future conversation, I'd really like to try to drill down into your uh, recipes for the cookshops of the future. You know about communism, but uh, but, uh, but I should. But I don't have a precise recipe. My, you know, when people ask me, what do you mean by communism? My idea is: look, what even when conservatives are in power, are forced to do now: distribute billions, which is not founded in any market logic and so on. Now people then tell me, okay, this is just to go through the crisis. Yeah, but this crisis will not disappear in two, three months. You will have to go on and it will go on and on and on. And something will have to happen here. Either, again, this great reset with a totally controlled society, which I think all this bubble idea, you know, we will live in isolated bubbles. Yes, maximum 40% of us, the 60% will still stay out and so on. I mean, you know, to whom did I dedicate my pandemic volume to? You know how many countries are in the world which are heavily hit by COVID, but their situation is so horrible that they 
Don't even think about it. COVID is a minor threat. Like I read about Yemen. It's under terrible COVID inflation of cases. But sorry, they're in a civil war. They have many more problems. It doesn't even enter. We should never forget this, that COVID is, as it appears now, maybe there is some historical just, justice in it. Not so clearly, but more or less, the problem of Europe, United States, Canada, and maybe some parts of Latin America, where nonetheless it's getting a little bit, a little bit better now, because I notice even how our classification of COVID, first wave, second wave, is Eurocentric, basically. Latin America had a totally different rhythm, and so on and so on. Sorry. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and... And I and I guess you know thinking about you know you were talking earlier about what Cuba has uh, has done to to contain you know COVID yeah. with you know, committees for the defense of you know the revolution yeah. uh, and and all of that and and I think that might tie into what we were talking about earlier about about the difference between that sort of uh, what you talked about as the moral majority in the good sense like Bernie yeah. Sanders uh, and and moralism right you know because because it seems to me. That again, the, so much, especially of, of liberal discourse about uh, mm -hmm. about COVID, uh, is purely about uh, about culture war. You know, about about whether you you wear a uh, you know whether you're wearing a mask or not. You know, as mm -hmm. as, as like a symbol of uh, of individual virtue, <laughs> uh, which is a which is a good place to uh, to invite Amber to uh, brutally intervene Please. in the conversation. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was thinking about early on when I was actually. Um, in the sort of early COVID uh, days, and I was interviewing um, an old, like, uh, like nightlife legend. I, I won't call her old or whatever. In this sort of like drag queen scene, and she had been a big Bernie Sanders advocate, and she had also, you know, as a gay man, like lived through AIDS. So she was suddenly seeing again people being terrified of other people. Mm -hmm. And it reminded her, she, she doesn't really care about pronouns. It reminded her of being a gay man and, and you know, narrowly avoiding this, uh, you know, terrible disease that killed all of her friends. Mm -hmm. And more troublingly, it was the, um, the sudden presence of people's fear of one another that yeah. sort of brought everything uh, to, to a head. And there was so much animosity about it. And it was like, who is putting people at risk, who is putting people in danger. And there was very little attention played to, um, uh, for example, what how Reagan was responding to it, or in the UK, the same thing with, with Thatcher. And uh, she said one of the things that she saw happening again with COVID very early on was people would be taking pictures of like 14-year-old kids playing basketball together without a mask and would be like, you know, look at these assholes not wearing masks. And she's like, mm -hmm. what? Why? She said, it's an excuse not to look up. It's not to look at the people who are in charge of managing these sort of things. It's very easy for us to look side to side now and try to police because we don't actually have any broad institutions that we have any faith in. So we look side to side. We look at our neighbor and that's the person who's the problem. We don't look at the people who ostensibly are supposed to be um, managing the crisis because we've just lost any idea of what that could be of what that could even look like a long time ago. No, I 
deeply agree with what you said, uh, uh, because incidentally, in my country, Slovenia, it's exactly the same. Government in a very unpopular, stupid way, protecting business, uh, orders some measures, and then if they don't work, the people are guilty, you know. They yeah. didn't pay and they never ask themselves. And so it's 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 horrible. But you know what worries me a little bit? I don't know if it's the same in the United States. It's not simply what they call the COVID fatigue. It's that now retroactively, maybe this is a retroactive myth. In uh, At least here in my country and parts of Europe that I know, uh, uh, March and April appear compared with what is going on today, almost as a kind of a healthy panic, you know. We were just afraid of COVID, we have to quarantine and so on. But now something very strange is happening. At the same time, uh, relaxation, even if, for example, in Slovenia now, numbers are 30 times three zero higher than they were in April. But nonetheless, people go around, they meet, even if it's prohibited. It's a kind of a relaxation, but it's a very uh, desperate relaxation. It's not so much fear as depression. People don't see even any perspective. And even if they engage in not so much sexual as socializing orgies and so on, it's always some despair in it, like, let's enjoy it as long as we can. People... I mean, to us, to Americans, that makes a lot of sense. Because for Americans, I mean, I think with the American, like, apocalyptic uh, uh, sort of uh, Protestantism, I mean... That's just that's that's apocalyptic hedonism. I think sets in after a while. That's a nice term. Did you invent it? Apoc- uh, apocalyptic hedonism. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful term because that, that's the problem with this. Uh, I once said that uh, wrote that uh, uh, apocalyptic visions. The situation is too serious for apocalyptic visions, as they put it. We cannot afford them. The terms we should, maybe you know that line of mine, I love to repeat it. The best formula I heard was way back from Chile. We know when these apocalyptic uh, visions began to predominate. You know what was their formula? No, it's not the end of the world, but... We want a different, better end of the world. (laughs) Let's not play this uh, democratic establishment game. A little bit of patience, which also Trump plays. Things will return to normal and so on. No, a certain world is coming to an end and we have to work hard to construct a new normality. And it can be done. I think one of the things we have now is that um, the sort of dominant liberal discourse, which has positioned itself as uh, the moral discourse, mm. on yeah, COVID, yeah. Um, they have absolutely zero ability in tone beyond either smug or hysterical. And not only is the hysteria completely alienating, but it actually, I think, I think it undermines the actual urgency of the situation. Because the thing about panic is that mm. it's rarely ever warranted. There's rarely ever a reason to panic. Yeah. When there is a reason to panic, that's when you definitely need to not panic. Yeah. So yeah. under no situation is 
someone claiming to be an, a moral authority ever, you know, lending credibility to their own leadership by running around hysterically. But that's basically what we have. Um, and I, I really don't, I mean, I see the anti-mask protests and, you know, it's like, you're really taking your lives into your own hands. But I, I absolutely see where it comes from because uh, it's disgusting seeing these people walk around just, again, they're also the people panicking tend to be very, the lowest risk. They have a home, they have a yard, they don't have to go to work. So it's, it's extra um, ridiculous coming from them. You're not seeing, um, you know, uh, nurses or, or, you know, people who work at grocery stores exhibit the same degree of hysteria as someone who now teaches, you know, Zoom philosophy classes at the new school from uh, at home. Um, and yet those are the people that are sort of adopting the tenor of someone who is actually in danger. Um, but it's, it's, there's no room for it in this moment. There are these two poles. There are the, you know, sort of the broader skepticism of it and sort of the oppositional defiance to um, all the prescriptions for safety, mm-hmm. which I think are inevitable. You can't judge them. Yeah. Yeah. They're inevitable. And then there's these screeching hysterics um, who have no solution to the problem other than personal responsibility and uh, shaming and isolation and um, smug self-importance. And those are the people, of course, that believe it's the end of the world and that scream it's the end of the world. And it's like, well, then why then why would anyone do anything? Yeah. If it really is the end of the world, then apocalyptic hedonism would be appropriate. Yeah. Then let's get drunk. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think it's very bad. It doesn't need to be the end of the world for us to intervene and to do something. Right. No, but I, here I try to, maybe I'm wrong. I try to give a, a positive spin to it. Yes, but every first, this end of the world, you know, it will drag on and on. It will never end. That's the first paradox for me, you know. Did you notice how history was was supposed to end and then this end just drags on and on and so on. I yeah. think that no I would like me. to... Sorry, please. No one told me yeah. yeah. But it's one interesting point. Maybe somebody, I don't know who told me recently, even on a podcast, maybe, uh, maybe Fukuyama, who began this story of end of the world, do you know, is it true or not? Isn't so bad? Somebody told me that now he changed his position and that he supports Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. He advocated for basic like welfare interventions and also just recanted his entire proposition. He was like, oh, apparently there isn't an end point. Nothing is fixed, which I think, I mean, I applaud him for. Like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. once you see history happening again, you can't stick your head in the sand. Um, it's not yeah. the history that we wanted, but, you know, in some ways it is encouraging because the future is not written. And and that is yeah. yes. So that's why you said something wonderful. If I may to engage my professional corruption into a kind of philosophy, rather playing with terms, do you have it in English? I don't think you do. In French and other languages, we have it. There is a wonderful distinction between two terms for future, future and avenir, but they're not the same. Future means just what will come, but it can be the same. For example, if Trump were to win, 
he would be the present and future president. Uh. If you say avenir, it's to come. What will come after? It's a change. Trump will not be the president to come. He would be just the same. And I think the problem with futurologists and all people that panic and so on, that they consciously, it's a kind of perverted structure of pleasure, reject to think this to come, a new beginning. It's really a perverted enjoyment into this. I'm stuck at home. I watch old TV movies all the time. They basically, in a very perverted way, it, Enjoy, enjoy this situation, I think. Oh, yes, no, I mean, they don't feel pleasure, but they can feel glee. It's very yeah. perverse. Um, I know, I was here in Lacan, and I agree with you. You know, for Lacan, in, uh, enjoyment is pleasure in pain, not direct pleasure. Never underestimate, underestimate how people, when they have to renounce some pleasure, can draw enjoyment out of these rituals of renunciation. For example, my British friend, psychoanalyst uh, Darian Leader, pointed out how these rules that are imposed now are a paradise for obsessional neurotics like me, incidentally. You know, like, you don't have to worry, how should I greet you, what are the forms, everything is preset, how you lock your elbows or whatever, you know. Another thing that I often repeat, I would like to repeat it here, would you agree or not that uh, it's not as simple as it looks with this uh, 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 social distancing, it's really only bodily distancing. Socially, through the media, digital media and so on, we are probably more socialized, more connected, more controlled than ever. For me, the project Sorry, I, I actually I just wrote a uh, an article uh, about sort of Twitter activism, and there was this moment where it's like we are closer than we have ever been socially, and we are lonelier than we have ever been uh, because those things aren't necessarily the same thing. But definitely, we are we are breathing down each other's necks, yet there is no intimacy. Yeah, yeah. Um, very good formula. And what I am afraid is is precisely this tendency, this type, new type of social contact, I fear it much more than isolation. I mean, often I feel almost a need to be authentically alone. That's what I mean. That's what I miss now. <laughs> it's crazy, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the, uh, so the article Amber is talking about, uh, it's called The, uh, the Problem uh, with Hashtag Activism, uh, and it came mm. out I think in Catalyst, uh, like a couple months ago, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. uh, exactly the kind of strange nerd who'd like keep a copy of Catalyst in the bathroom and, you know, like read through it all the time, you know, and, uh, uh, but it was right recently- I'm with you in your intimate moments. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was, uh, but it was reprinted uh, recently uh, in, uh, in Jacobin. Uh, and, and, and in it, Amber, and by the way, I should say, Slavoj, I, I really hope you can, you know, you can stay and talk to us for a few minutes. I know it's getting late in, in, in Ljubljana. Do you have another 10 minutes or so in you? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yep. Uh, so, okay, uh, that goes, yes. Yeah, so in the, uh, in the article, Amber, you talk about how, you know, the, the article's written as a, as a review of a book about, uh, about Twitter activism, 
uh, you know, but the larger mm-hmm. thing is that it feels like we, we, we can very easily be involved in these activist efforts to change the world on online, you know, with, with these kind of viral hashtags and things like that. Uh, and, and there's all this stuff that's been written in celebration of this and, and how amazing it is and how participatory it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what seems to be left out of that is that none of it ever seems to work. Yeah. Um, and even the authors themselves, the examples they use, I mean, uh, you know, the Greek referendum vote, uh, Occupy Wall Street, uh, Arab Spring, um, nothing worked. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work, but they're so, you know, it, they're, they're so pleased to see activity. Um, and the idea that this might be a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing is irrelevant to them. Now, I, I wondered if uh, for a while that they thought that they had succeeded at these things or they considered them mm-hmm. or they considered them. You know, I couldn't figure out why when they would say, well, what about Occupy? Didn't 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 uh, Twitter do Occupy? And it's like, well, first of all, no, it didn't. I think the financial collapse of 2008 did Occupy. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter was a, a, a tool used in that. But also Occupy was not successful. Um, and then I realized basically, I think in this kind of academic slash activist world, which is, you know, since the cultural turn and the decline of, of the trade union movement, at least in America, has supplanted um, working class politics, their definition of what constitutes success does not resemble mine at all. And I remember this specifically being at Occupy in Zuccotti Park. Um, uh, someone was saying, well, you know, I, I want to make sure we get results from this. And this is when we were arguing about whether or not to have demands. And I wanted to have demands. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have demands, as I often do. And someone says, but what we're doing right here, right now, is doing something. And somebody raised their hand and they're like, look, I just want health care. And that is how most people experience politics. It's supposed to be a means to an end. I don't need a community. I'm not an isolated middle class cul-de-sac born, you know, PMC track person. Mm -hmm. I already have friends. I get involved in politics and activists because I want people to have fucking health care. So I think ultimately the problem with sort of like hashtag activism or online activism um, isn't so much the use of the tools, but it's the fact that there are no politics undergirding them and there are no institutions that are steering these things. Um, I think the fact that it's very diffuse, that it's very, I mean, they, they, they emphasize all of this stuff. It's the kind of post-Marxist spontaneity and the crowd and, you know, the, the, the strike is dead, long live the riot, all of that silly bullshit. Um, but it's represented very much by, and, and facilitated very much by the way um, social media functions and what it is capable of doing with activism is generating more activism, not generating power or building institutions or, or certainly not, you know, affecting change in the world. I cannot agree more with you because some people dismiss me as, I don't know, secret right-wing when I repeat that I'm sick and tired of this, you know, one million people gathered on Syntagma Square or I don't know where. We were all in solidarity, tears, unique moment. I'm saying, okay, but 
Uh, the morning after, you know, I, I'm very naive here. I think the real result of a radical movement is how ordinary people will feel the change, if any, after, afterwards. And this is why, for example, what really depressed me is, did you see it? I don't know where, in one of the big media, Guardian or CNN, I read a report on Tunisia, the hero of 10 years ago. The Arab Spring was a guy there, a fruit seller who uh, self-immolated. Yeah. Immolated himself and now streets are named after him. But the family is now so hated that they had to move to Canada, you know, because for or okay, there is more freedom now. They got these liberal freedoms, but as one of them said, we didn't fought, didn't fight just for this. We fought for dignity and work work or whatever that gives you a chance of dignified life and it's it's even it's even worse now and this is why i don't think this on the other hand i hate people who are pseudo radicals many of my friends Syriza, it's nothing it's nothing mm-hmm. i tell them okay what then when you do wait for a big authentic revolution this is And I think the situation is so totally hopeless. What do you think, for example, about Bolivia? Yeah, I yeah, knew yeah, that yeah, the yeah, president yeah, yeah, supported yeah. now Lucho Arce. They showed something. They won, they were re-elected because, as Lucho Arce said very nicely, look, we are not giving you empty words. Ten years For 10, 12 years, when I was finance minister, you never did so well. That's why I think there had to be coup at the time in Bolivia. It wasn't another Venezuela or what. They did it moderately, but with a clear line. They didn't screw it up. And that's the real thing to do today. Yeah, I understand. And the space has a cultural and political memory of wins, uh, of winning. And I think one of the problems that is compounded by like the you know the the kind of onlineification the depersonalized mm. activism is the fact that we have no generational memory of wins and the wins that we are taught about are yeah. mistaught so then as you said sorry yeah i would say maybe the the civil rights movement was one of the last you know truly successful coordinated moments we had. Now, right now that's taught, um, you know, even in sort of like the, the, the liberal theology, if you will, is, is all of these people got together and they held hands and they marched on Washington. Yeah. Never mentioned the degree of, of uh, trade union influence and of labor coordination that went behind this so that they actually had the muscle That's important, Amber, what you said, because people forget that when he was shot, Martin Luther King in that city, he was on a tour to support a combined black and white workers' strike. Yeah, he got much more radicalized. If you actually look at pictures of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and it's bad enough, like the erased, like it's bad enough that like we literally like have have erased the memory mm. of the Jobs and you know part of that. Uh, and you know, look, look, look am I going too far now? Am I going too far now, or would the two of you agree at least a little bit with me? I. 
written about it. I fully support LGBT+, and so on and so on. But it looked to me a little bit ridiculous in the summer when Trump was gaining, in the summer of 2016 or when, when Trump was gaining strength for the campaign. You remember, before Trump occupied the space, the big topic on uh, uh, front page of the media was how to solve that toilet problem, you know, so that it will not be binary. Should there be asexual toilets? Should that be? It was madness. There was a revolution forming right wing, the wrong one, and you had this high theological almost debates about three toilets, uh, all toilets, no toilets, or whatever. I mean, I'm fully for LGBT and for theoretical reasons, you know. <laughs> I just don't like when it totally obfuscates this I don't want to spend the entirety of the political discourse arguing about where we have to shit. Well, um, yeah. that's, that's, that's a waste of my time. I mean, also, to me, just being a, a purely pragmatic person, I'm like, you know what? Make every bathroom a stall. Everyone in Germany <laughs> solved, remove the conflict. Who cares? Um, don't turn it into a battle. Just, just yeah. every, everyone benefits from a private bathroom anyway. Who gives a shit? But I think it had more to do with demonstrating what side you were on, what your political identity was. Yeah. That's, the, that's the terrible thing that I think has developed and has been exacerbated by this sort of online stuff is that like politics has become a moral identity rather than a means to an end. It's are you the good guy or are you the bad guy? That's absurd. People have interests. People have concerns. People do have morals and values. But the whole point of politics is to wield them in such a way that you shape a world that is that looks the way you want it to look, that functions the way you want it to function. Would you agree then, Amber, with me? Uh, uh, I'm seriously concerned with this problem that some of this, your criticism, holds, I think, even for a certain type of popular middle class ecological movement. For example, I have friends who always buy organic apples and so on, all that stuff. And I always, to provoke them, tell them, do you really believe in it? That those apples who look more rotten, but cost much more, much more than the mm-hmm. uh, genetically modified, they, and they, some of them were honest and openly told me, no, but it makes me feel good to be part of a big thing and so on, all that to do, to show solidarity, to do something for mm-hmm. Mother Nature and so on. That's why I repeated this line many times in my books, but I find it. That's why for me, the supreme ingenuity of today's capitalism is what they're not doing it so much now. What Starbucks did years ago, the message was, uh, our coffee is a little bit more expensive, but 1% goes to save Guatemala children, the other percent. So that it's an ingenious move because in usual morality discourse, we are split between being consumerists and then working for common good, and they are offering you a wonderful formula. You pay a little bit more, so your social duty is already commodified, it's included in the price. So you can easily enjoy your I would go one step further than that. 
Um, oh, as far as you are not supposed to even think of yourself as a worker, but um, you know, as a part of the Starbucks family, I remember working for Starbucks as a barista during the time when the CEO was fighting tooth and nail to prevent us from getting health insurance. Mm -hmm. And not only do they tell the consumers of Starbucks, like you're, you're being a good person, you're saving the world by drinking this coffee, which no one really believes, but they want something with people are very desperate. They told us yeah. training as employees that we were a part of uh, of an ethical moral company and the, that we were contributing to the starbucks mission and the starbucks agenda meanwhile they weren't fucking paying for our health care so it's there's there's like three points in which you're being told these are the ways to be good and none of them are politically effective and all of them yeah, necessarily yeah. from a working class political project well, well it goes back to your point about hashtag activism that you know people who say things like oh you know we occupy was a great victory just the existence of occupy was a great victory yeah. it's kind of the same thing with the uh, ethical consumption for starbucks or sure. when people when people say that they um you know, like like my favorite lib thing is is when people say, "Oh, I'm not going to buy that. I'm boycotting it." And I always think, "Well, well, do you yeah. know what a boycott is? Right? Like no, you, they don't. It, workers call boycotts, and most people don't understand what a boycott is. That that's like again when I talk about how we have no memory of winning, we also have no memory of like what these words even mean anymore. Um, you saw this with like, there was like a one day strike called by Amazon and people were like, I'm never buying from Amazon again. It's like, that's not what the workers are asking for. This is not actually about you. You're supposed to be acting in solidarity. Solidarity is another word that's been debased beyond. It's, it's basically like namaste or love and light now. Solidarity yeah. implies a shared risk that you are taking on with someone. Yeah. It requires yeah, that's why would you agree i'm also very skeptical that's for me the ultimate horror of today's uh, humanitarian corporate capitalism this obsession with well-being you know no. you should be all protected in in educational institutions you shouldn't be to my god for me good education means it precisely uh, takes you out of your bubble and teaches you how to confront the brutal reality. No, now you should be guaranteed that you will not be disturbed in any way and so on and so on. Now, some friends who defend this well-being protection tell me, but otherwise you can be traumatized. No, if you live also in the academia in such a bubble, you will be really traumatized. Then will be a crisis when you enter the real world, no? Right. See, well, if you ask me... It's never the people with the sort of like eviscerating trauma that tend to be the hysterics. I mean, it's 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 never the people who are like, yes, I was a child soldier. It's uh, it's always a thing that you know. I'm sure it was troubling, but I, there was a, there was a developmental psychologist I think that said uh, the best way for a child to grow up is a series of uh, small but manageable traumas. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And I even think that uh, uh, that this is always also the source of true creativity. You are you are traumatized, which means the coordinates in which you were living are shattered, and then you have to think to invent and so on. I think that not only trauma does not prevent you thinking. We, there is no thinking, real thinking, without a 
At least, uh, as you put it nicely, a moderate trauma. No? I mean, the Apollo model is the most obvious one, where the actual way you literally build physical muscle is by damaging it, and then it rebuilds itself stronger. I mean, it's a heavy-handed biological metaphor, but yeah. like, yeah, a little bit of measured, consistent trauma is good. Obviously, yeah. horrible things happening to you can be eviscerating, but like. Now you're supposed to engage with difficult things. You're supposed to, you know, like uh, you're supposed to challenge yourself. Things are supposed to be difficult. You're supposed to be sore and exhausted, and that makes you better. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, I uh, so I, I don't want to. Uh, I, I don't want to continue this. Story, but is, is, sorry. In fact, uh, <laughs> is in fact sore and exhausted. But we can, I, how do they say in California style? We can repeat. Experience, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just Sorry. got here, so I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah so, so I, I just. Uh, but you can continue with the lady. I leave, and then you can say all you wanted against me. You are free. <laughs> never, never. I never say anything behind anyone's back. Uh, I only say it to their face. Ah, you know what's my worst humanitarian joke? I, when I'm caught saying somebody something against somebody behind his or her back, my excuse is, but I'm a war human being. I cannot hurt you. If I say to you face to face, it will be offensive. So I'm sorry. Out of my humanitarian spirit, I'm only saying it behind your back. <laughs> very kind. Very kind. <laughs> very kind. Very kind. Yeah. I like it. So the Jack theory of shit talking you heard it for here first. Uh, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate this, uh, this Slavoj, uh, this, this. But do uh, some cutting of me, above all. Yeah, no. Censorship, censorship. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll cut it all in extremely misleading ways, make it seem like you were saying things that you weren't really saying, you know, so. so. That's my idea, that's what I like. Did you see, I want to repeat this case, did you see that movie, The Thin Blue Line, where a guy says, uh, to get an, you know, to get a guilty person condemned, every, every, prosecutor can do. To get an innocent person condemned, you need a really good prosecutor. Not so that's what you're doing. Thank you much. All right, fair enough. Thank you so much. Sorry, how do I go out? Oh, and, I uh, have a time, although you know that here in Slovenia it's much worse. We are a nation of two million which has between 1,500 and 2,000 cases per day per capita. We are we're at some point the worst in the world. So, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, yeah. Slavoj. Godspeed. <laughs> so, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite a goodbye. <laughs> uh, what a charmer. I mean, I remember last year, it seems like 20 years ago, when he debated Jordan Peterson... You know, think like that. The the best take on this I saw was from this Canadian journalist Mark Clifton, who, uh, in you know, in his article about this, was like, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing what a lot of leftists wanted him to do. So people were very frustrated by it. They wanted him to like rhetorically own and destroy. You know, Jordan. They wanted a West Wing episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where President Bartlett gives the stirring speech, and the Republicans yeah. are just stunned into silence. You know, yeah, he's not uh, President Bartlett. What's that? She's like is not President Bartlett. No, 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 whatsoever. Uh, a very gracious and uh, and thoughtful person enough so that he will talk to Jordan Peterson as he meanders on and doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And also, I think too, the weird thing about that moment was like 
you're already you already have a a, a, an idea of what you believe this is this this event is for like 15 year old boys who no one will talk to because they're stinky and annoying but who have to hear and who benefit from hearing um ideas actually debated mm. um there is a value to that. And it's like, oh, that's juvenile. It's like, yeah, well, there are these people called juveniles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Juvenile, <laughs> from juvenile things. Yeah. And and I think that he correctly saw that like most people who like buy Jordan Peterson's books or you know give money online or whatever are not hardened reactionaries. They're just confused dudes. I, I considered and I, I said this openly, and for a long time, like a lot of my male friends really disagreed with me. I'm like the ascendancy of Jordan Peterson is a good sign um, because insofar as uh, alienated young, downwardly mobile, formerly middle-class men need many fathers or else they, you know, become mass shooters. Um, I think him and Joe Rogan are some of the better ones. Um, God knows uh, it was pretty dark there for a while in the kind of like, you know, incel world uh, and the, you know, the kind of like, major voices that um i think a lot of young men had to turn to mm-hmm. were really menacing and uh and peterson is just kind of like a scoldy whiny silly dad but i think what a lot of sort of progressive men resented about it was he's like if you want a girlfriend you have to clean your room and they're <laughs> like, you don't, like you don't care that he's sexist you care that he's telling you to clean your room because that part he's <laughs> right about um and no woman i know was a, was as mortified by uh jordan peterson as a lot of the um uh you know my beloved fail son friends um, <laughs> yeah. opposing him would be um is somehow a you know a progressive male feminist bona fides rather than kind of passing the buck on adulthood. Yeah. And, you know, Joe Rogan is actually like, uh, I mean, I, you know, he's all over the place. I mean, I, I don't think he can be accused. Most, of having- people are. Most people are politically idiosyncratic. And uh, if you can't deal with that, you've decided, uh, you know, most of the world is going to hell and is a bad person. Yeah, because most, because most, which, yeah, because most people, you know, they have political impulses, they have political reactions to things, but or they um, have experiences that probably don't look anything like yours, so it makes sense that they probably wouldn't come to the exact same conclusion you did because you have a fucking minor in women's studies. Right, right, right. right. Plus, yeah, plus, I mean, plus, just like most people have jobs and families and lives, and they have, but they have all these things to, shit to do. Being in politics is a weird thing. It's a weird thing to dedicate time to, particularly because, you know, the ultimate, you know, galaxy brain of being a political thinker is realizing that, one, it is niche, and two, the people who ignore politics are technically correct because they're like, I'm not going to influence this. Right. Actually, we're the weirdos. Who were like, maybe this time, which is like, you know, the definition of insanity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and and look, I mean, at least, you know, at least Joe Rogan, I mean, it's an eclectic mix. There's some reactionary stuff in there, but, you know, at least he at, at, at least he supports Medicare for all. He's very like, I remember uh, actually back in January, right? It was just before the Iowa caucus when he endorsed Bernie. Uh, they, um I, I wrote an article about this with Michael Brooks for uh, for Jacobin, and we said that the um, like 
just about, and I think this actually does take us back to hashtag activism, how insane it is that there were people, and I know a lot of this was like ginned up by supporters of other campaigns or whatever, but some of it was organic, uh, that there were all these people who were outraged. It wasn't organic. If you're that easy to gin up, if you're that much of a fucking sucker, you know, come on, wise up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got you right where they want you. Yeah, totally. And that, like, that's such a weird way to look at the world. Oh, this guy who agrees with us about some things and doesn't agree with us about other things is supporting our candidate. And mm-hmm. he likes that he he's the candidate likes that he's being supported by him. This is a problem. Something must be done. Yeah, yeah. It's like also like learn to count, motherfucker. I don't know how big you think the left is, uh, but we can't carry an election. Right. Um, well, more, more than that, I, I think it's. I think it is worth pointing out that, yes, it was largely ginned up by bad actors. There are a few actual hysterics out there, but I think the majority of like kind of leftists who kind of like hemmed and hawed a little bit. And I, I the people like, well, I don't support what show. And it's like, don't even equivocate. Like, don't just don't just say who fucking cares. Like he's a nice guy with a huge audience and some good ideas and some bad ideas. And this is good for our project. And you know what? It's good for him. Like it's, it's good that he's doing this. How come it doesn't work both ways? How is it that he is going to pollute uh, the left, all 12 of us with his (laughs) reactionary ideology and not, he's learning and uh, developing more, you know, nuanced politics. Yeah. I mean, which, which... Of that, not to Zizek, but, yeah. but I think, uh, I, I think you saw the baseline of um, moral insecurity that undergirds um, the kind of, uh, you know, the base of what should be uh, at least a nation's, ostensible one day left, uh, you know, political movement. Now we are not getting anywhere if all of those people are so morally insecure that when someone says, well, you know, Joe Rogan said this about this, they're like, well, I don't No, You should say, fuck you. I know what you're doing. And I am not falling for it. You need to be able to point out the people that are on your side and not on your side, or you're just, you'll fall for it every time. Um, and that's the problem I see is, you know, it, it like moral insecurity, um, uh, a refusal to break with the sort of institutions that are inherently against, you know, uh, like a, a Bernie Sanders type program, a refusal to recognize them as or an inability, not a refusal, to recognize them as the enemy, as a competing ideology. Um, because all the, the concessions you give to them, just it just sucks the air out of the room. Uh, no one, no, we're not going to get new people on board if his supporters are milquetoast too. And plus, it rots your soul. You cannot sit on the fence forever. You'll get splinters in your ass. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and I think that this whole idea that it, it's like, you know, instead of just saying, oh, good, likable guy, ginormous audience, uh, yeah. you know, like whatever. Instead a ginormous of- audience of non-voters. 
Right, 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 right. That's the most important part. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that if instead of that, right, like people are very are really concerned with this, like, is Joe Rogan good or bad question, you know. If it, it then they're not concerned about politics. If they're concerned with that, they're not concerned about health care. Yeah, that it's, it's like it's almost as if like politics is about just is about figuring out whether Joe Rogan is going to heaven or hell. Uh, rather than okay, what would be useful or not useful to try to get healthcare, or to try to rebuild the labor movement, to try well, to I mean, it's a cliche like you know the right looks for converts, the left looks for apostates. Um, it's kind of true, it, but it is kind of true, and that is a thing that happens. I think particularly when the left is on its back, uh, we are. What's more than we're on our back and like six feet under. Um, yeah. Yeah, because because like you know you were saying earlier that like we've we've almost lost the cultural memory of of what winning you know could could even look like. Yeah, uh, and and it seems like you know I mean look I love Noam Chomsky but I think it is telling that you know like like friend bad Daniel Bessner always points out you know that if you read Chomsky there's never a point where he's like okay well if a socialist government took power in the United States how would it handle you know, whatever, you know, whatever I'm talking about now. And right. it's, it's reasonable that he's not including that because especially because, I mean, especially considering when he's coming up, that mm-hmm. just would have seemed like saying, okay, well, when I ascend to the, you know, throne of the galactic emperor or whatever, you know, here's what I'll do. You know, when I am king, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would, it would just be silly. Uh, but, they, but the problem with that is that if politics – becomes reduced to a moral stand. You know, we're doing something by tweeting hashtags. You know, we're doing something by occupying Zakoti for that matter, you know, without any idea, you know, because you're so, you so fully internalized the idea that you're never going to win that it doesn't even become about that anymore. It becomes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe the revolution was the friends we made along the way. I already have fucking friends. I'm cool. Uh, I don't need friends. I need healthcare. Uh, And I think most people who haven't been brain poisoned by like online fucking political culture also have friends in real life and would in fact prefer healthcare to this weird, parasocial community that is actually very kind of nasty and backbiting, which is again, a a result of the fact that we don't have any power. So we have nothing to do, but, you know, perform vicious HR mediations and purges within the ranks of the, the, the skinny meek ranks of, uh, of something that isn't even a party or an organization. (laughs) Yeah. How much of that do you think is like like I don't I don't think it reduces entirely to this. I think there are other things going on, but I mean, how much do you think that is just a result of so many leftists, even if they're downwardly mobile, having been socialized into this kind of professional managerial class idea that you have that like you you get ahead by like climbing up hierarchies in this in this cutthroat way, and then this sort of yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of a chicken and egg thing. I think actually the decline of, I, th- I think, yes, I think it is, I think it is PMC ideology that makes people into nasty shitheads that are always trying to get each other fired. Um, however, I think their PMC ideology and the kind of cutthroat competitiveness um, is a result of, uh, you know, like Aaron Reich's The Fear of Falling. Like, these are people who did not experience the um, comfortable PMC life of the post-war boom. 
Um, that entire kind of market sector has gone away. Those jobs are fewer and fewer. They're shittier and shittier. And now it's, uh, you know, the white collar work, uh, most white collar work is pretty indistinguishable from what you might used to call a shit job in terms of security, in terms of pay, in terms of benefits, um, in terms of how shitty your boss can treat you. Um, the difference is, I think, with uh, with working class culture and working class, I mean, I hate the phrase working class culture, but yeah, right. I mean, the ideology that is sort of produced politically by, you know, working for a wage and not having paid, um, you know, a, an entry fee, which mm-hmm. we do college tuition uh, to get that job. Um, I think the difference is that if you work a shit job and didn't go to college, you didn't expect it to not be a shit job. So I think the downwardly mobile PMC um, who have fallen um, are still sort of reeling from the shock. So it's much more difficult for them to sort of form solidarity around like, oh, look, this is all shitty. In their mind, because it's such an isolating kind of workforce, I think, in their mind, it's, um, it's like they're the one that's getting screwed over. And they're, they're the ones who it's like uniquely sort of um, been uh, denied what, what they were promised, you know, as, as a little kid when their parents bought them a, you know, sweatshirt from Harvard or whatever. Um, and that that's obviously like being declassed is more traumatizing, I think, than consistent um, because you develop coping mechanisms and yeah, you're yeah, 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 working class and they can model it for you. And like, this it's is the same reason the people who can, who can work from home with their employer laptop uh, exactly. are, are more freaked out about COVID than people who have to go to work every day at the grocery store where people come within like three inches of their face. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, it, at the very least, you know, uh, regardless of, of their concern and their panic and their, genuine understandable fear of catching the disease they have a sense of well this is my job and also hey stoicism is um a virtue and um that's definitely been lost among the pmc which is why hysteria is essentially social currency like the more scared and screaming and damaged and freaked out you are the better your wounded bird act the more capital you have in these kind of like completely socially mediated interactions they're the nastiest fucking people. I do not envy them. <laughs> no, Fair no real friends, no real just like colleagues. Oof. Yeah, that's that's one of those that's one of those terms, colleagues. You know, it's like it's 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 creepy, like in a weird way, right? I mean, obviously, all the terms that that boss, you know, that like corporations develop to describe their most like being down subservient labor force like associates and stuff that's creepy in one way but like yeah, yeah. colleagues is creepy in a completely different way because it, it just seems like what's like like what are you like as a human being if you just like say that without like yeah. irony or you know you just like you just oh yeah no that, yeah, that's my colleague yeah yeah uh i taught um uh intro to essay writing at NYU, which is one of the few places that allows someone without an advanced degree to teach something. Cause they're like, Hey, what if you learned writing from writers? Mm. Um, and, uh, I, I said, I wanted my title to, because they're like, is, you know, they, you're, you're not a, like a doctor, but like professor doesn't necessarily mean the degree. And I'm like, I would like to be known as, um, 
a uh, an essay writing sandwich artist. That's my that's my title. Like, if I could pick it. Fair enough. Well, this has been uh, essay writing sandwich artist Amber Lee Frost. <laughs> Uh, explaining why, uh, if you want to do politics, you should log the fuck off uh, and and not and not confuse what happens on uh, on Twitter with politics, which is something that we could go on about for a very long time. But I would get depressed. So uh, thank you so much for coming, Amber. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, Sounded fun. Yeah, no, no, that that definitely was. Uh, I think having, um, yeah, I mean, Zizek is. I mean, I, I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they don't already know when I say that he's 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 a high intensity guy. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's uh, trying to you know try to get like a word in edgewise, and then like I thought it would be fun, and it was fun. Like it was great, you know. Having mm-hmm. Were on at the same time, but like that twenty minutes or whatever, they were on at the same time. You know, I was like, oh, I'm gonna like try to like cut in here every fifteen minutes or so. You know, <laughs> yeah. see if I can get a word on my own show. What's that? I said, see if I can get a word in on my own show. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> but I'm not complaining because that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. No, that's fun. Uh, so I am now joined uh, by. You know, I think one of the top hundred or so uh, long-haired Texan communists, uh, David Griscom, uh, formerly of Michael Brooks Show, now co-host of uh, of Left Reckoning, which I am a patron of. I've I've listened to the streams that have happened so far. It seems like it's going to be really good. Yeah, and uh, you know, for anybody who's still hasn't been introduced to it, uh, January seventh is going to be our first uh, actual show because we've just been doing these streams, which have been really fun and are very nutritious. But you know, upper you know guest format shows uh, starting January seventh. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and actually, I haven't gotten a chance to to listen to it yet, but I think it's cool that you're doing it. Uh, you you're doing some like you know breakdowns of, of classic texts. Like I, I saw that you just did one about critique of the Gotha program. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, so I think Matt and I are going to try to go through some of the more foundational texts and like Marxism, and I also think we might expand that a little bit to just like socialist theory, socialist philosophy. Um, yeah, but we just did a real deep dive into the Gotha program, which was very, uh, felt very pertinent today. So definitely, yeah. you know, look for, out for that. And <clears throat> I think we're going to try to do the Communist Manifesto and a couple of those other texts soon, too, which mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's good, too, because, I mean, like bo- both of these things, you know, I mean, it can be really um, like, I, I, I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, people are trying to like find their way into like the Mark singles, you know, collected works, you know, like yeah. it could seem like you're climbing this like ridiculous mountain of text, you know, that like, a, especially anybody who's ever like tried to like break open capital and you have to like wade through, you know, 50 pages about, you know, uh, about a yard of, of silk. And you know, <laughs> yeah, how yeah. do you make a jacket? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but so I, I think it's, I, I think like it's a really good idea to do, these um, these very like short and accessible texts, I mean, critique of the goth program, critique of the modern communist manifesto. Mm-hmm. Those are both things you could read in an afternoon. Uh, but there's like so much there that I think like if you know, so people can like read it along and then they can like listen to you know to to you and Matt talking about it. And it seems like a, a really good way to to get a, a solid chunk of you know Marxist uh, content there. No, exactly. And you know, one thing Matt and I have been trying to make sure that people 
get is that, look, I've read those texts a, a bunch of times and it's still, you know, it's a little bit of a task to go through it. Time-wise, they're short, so you can you can actually do it in an afternoon. But it takes me those things two or three times, really, I think, to, to get it. Um, you know, so just trying to be really honest with people, but also, you know, showing folks that like, yeah, like you can read these texts. Like they aren't these kind of inaccessible um ideas or you know they're not too difficult to get into but you know it takes a little bit of work and a little bit of humility but uh yeah anyways it's been it's been really fun i'm hoping to do a lot more of that going forward nice um well let's uh some... so you're switching over to bourbon uh well rye this is uh this oh, is very nice uh, this is whistle pig uh so that's a uh, rye, i think from uh because California, anyway, it's really good, um, but uh, but whiskey at any rate. Uh, so I, I said last time that you know that in you know when I first had the idea for you know for this segment, you know I wanted to uh, I wanted to recreate um, the uh, the experience of you know being out you know at, after a night of bar hopping and you know and and, and going over to uh, the Griscom. Uh, apartment in Brooklyn and you know and, and and you'd always like pour a little whiskey and and we'd listen to some country music and you'd tell me about it and it was a good time and I want to other people <laughs> get to uh to experience that so uh what are we uh what are we talking about today so today um so I open up beer because I feel like it's only just to do it for this guy Tom T Hall yeah um, I like beer. one of the great songwriters of all time yeah. Um, and he also wrote one of the great beer drinking anthems, um, the very mysteriously titled I Like Beer, <laughs> um, which is personally one of my favorite songs. Um, it drives my girlfriend crazy because I sing it all the time. But the song uh, I Like Beer is literally just like I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me chill out and makes me feel mellow. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, really fun, um, beautiful song. But. For people who aren't familiar, and I'm just going to be completely honest, I'm not going to be able to do uh, just empty hall um, in this segment. You really just have to spend some time listening to his music because he is an incredible performer, an incredible songwriter, and was behind so many great hits. Um, so before we get into any of the songs that you know he actually performed, um, I don't know if you're familiar. Uh, have you ever heard the song Harper Valley PTA before, Ben? Uh, I actually had, I'm trying to remember how I actually, uh, not a very long time before, because if I'm remember, I might be getting my wires crossed here, mm -hmm. but yeah, when you, when you sent me the, the playlist of stuff to listen to for, um, you know, to, to prepare for this discussion, I, uh, when I, when I heard it, you know, I definitely heard it before. I think I'd heard it because they, they'd mentioned it on the podcast, cocaine and rhinestones. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for people who aren't familiar, that is just it was a it was a super hit. It was an international hit um, because the subject matter is so perfect. And uh, Tom T. Hall wrote the song. He obviously didn't perform it, um, but he wrote the song. And it's just the perfect kind of in your face moment where this woman um, gets called into the Harper Valley uh, PTA, Parent Teachers Association, to basically be told by all of them that the clothes that she wears when she picks up her children or whatever are, you know, too revealing. And instead of just taking it, the, the singer in the song um, basically puts everybody else's dirty laundry out in full view of the town. And like, uh, you know, there's a couple of lines from it's like, 
Uh, well, Mr. Harper couldn't be here because he stayed too long at Kelly's bar again. And if you smell, if you smell Shirley Thompson's breath, you'll find that she's had a little nip of gin. Um, it's just, it's a hilarious song. It's like very defiant. Um, and it's a kind of moment I think most people can relate to where it's just like, you're just being bogged down in bureaucracy and passive aggressive nonsense when you know, every single person in there, um, is just as, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, God, you're going to go back to what problematic. I with, with with amber i mean it's like when people this this thing oh, yeah. that's happened several times right in pro, like not just i mean it's probably happened a thousand times but several prominent times where uh where somebody will will like try to cancel somebody else over old tweets sometimes they'll get the first person fired and mm-hmm. then people get pissed off about that and they'll look up the old tweets of the person who you know who like initially got the other person <laughs> yeah. fired and they'll get fired from whatever they do you know and it's it's like one of these like insane um you know like di- you know dynamics and and you know really actually i think that gets to um that definitely gets to part of what I was talking about, about that, you know, you know, hundred percent. You, I mean, you, you, you want to build a left that doesn't feel like the Harper Valley PTA meeting, but yeah, I think, I think that's exactly it. And like the Harper Valley PTA song is like an anti PMC song before the PMC um, was a concept or, you know, in most people's lexicon, like it's a hundred percent, the anti kind of PMC totally. uh, attitude. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a phenomenal song. And, and it was just like, it's hard to talk about Tom, Tom T. Hall just in this way, just because he influenced so many people. He was an incredible um, songwriter. He wrote songs for Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, George Jones. Like he was, he was in the writer's room for a lot of these great um, songs that we all know and love today. Um, You know, but he was a country boy, boy from Kentucky, a pretty typical story there, you know, you know, grew up in, you know, in rural Kentucky and, went off and spent a little bit of time in the army, tries to make it as a songwriter in Nashville for a little while. It's getting paid nothing. And then, you know, a few songs like Harbor Valley PTA really helped his career take off. Um, but he just knows how to write a song and his songs, like they're, they're great lyrically and musically are very interesting. But what's so cool about him is they are all like these kind of short stories. Mm. Um, and that's why he's such a, that's why he's one of my favorite songwriters, how I got to Memphis song uh, perfect of mine um just an absolutely beautiful song about you know love and heartbreak and all of the good um fodder for country music one of my favorite songs of his um is a song called faster horses um so basically uh, the song faster and it's just uh you know it's his kind of like dry sense of humor but the song faster horses is about a young poet who's sitting at a bar and he sees this old cowboy um, you know, come up to the bar and he starts asking him questions, you know, what is the meaning of life? What's the secret to life? Um, you know, obviously the poet's hoping that they're going to get some kind of beautiful, um, inspiring, you know, message from the, the soft-spoken cowboy. Um, but instead the cowboy looks at him, he says, the secret to life is faster horses, younger women, older whiskey, and more money. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and the, w- another part of that song that's really funny, um, is uh you know he completely the cowboy just completely stomps on any kind of romantic notion so like um it don't do men no good to pray for peace and rain peace and rain is just a way to say prosperity and buffalo chips is all it means to me right um, <laughs> so basically like this like, extremely cynical cowboy is talking to this you know young hopeful poet and by the end of the song the poet first tries to to fight him because he's just so angry 
at this guy for his lack of romance. Um, but then that, towards the end of the song decides that he doesn't want to be a poet anymore because now he knows the secret to life. Um, you know, just a, it's a very funny um, song. It's a short song, but it just sort of I, I, I want to highlight that song because it really shows like the Tom T. Hall um his way to just tell a story in two minutes, right. Yeah. Uh, to be able to capture, you know, the, how you get so excited and you're as a young person and you have all this hope for, you know, beauty and then life starts to wear you down a little bit. And then you start to think that like, you know, all that dumb materialist stuff I heard when I was younger, actually, that might be right. Um, <laughs> that's being a poet. Um, but anyways, Tom T. Hall, uh, the whole wrong impression is a tribune of, uh, uh, materialism or uh, or cynicism. He wrote. He he actually has some really incredible political songs too. Um, one of them is called "America the Ugly," um, which is a very interesting song. Essentially, um, a man comes to the United States to see how the country is doing, and in while he's through the United States, he goes to Appalachia and all these poor parts of the country, um, and. You know, he got to see in the line is like, you know, basically going through all these, you know, situations in the United States that were quite dire then and are still dire now. Um, and basically this person who wanted to go, um, you know, take a tour of the beautiful America. Um, he this is the line. Um, and that's what he got. They say America, the ugly today. Um, and it's a really powerful song, not just because it's, you know, obviously critical of. Uh, you know, a lot of the poverty and problems in this country, but it is so great of a, it's such a great line because you're juxtaposing, you know, obviously the song America, the beautiful with like the reality. And so it's not like an anti-America song in the sense that it's like, you know, just hating on the whole concept of this country. It's more like putting a mirror to the country and saying like, you know, you think that this is uh, what this land's supposed to represent, but for a lot of people, it's the complete opposite. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well, um, yeah, no, that's that's really uh, you know that's really well said, and that's that's definitely the uh, it's definitely the way to do it. Yeah, and you know, just so we don't uh, lose these things, he um, also did a lot of a lot of great jams with Earl Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if people aren't familiar, Earl Scruggs. Like, so I'm a banjo player, yeah. um, and there's literally a style of playing banjo, the style I learned called Scruggs style. So this guy's one of the great American you know musicians of all time. And uh, he, uh, Tom T. Hall, uh, wrote a bunch of songs with him, and they did them called Storyteller, Tom T. Hall, and The Banjo Man, uh, which is really fun. He also has some great songs like called The Country Is. And, uh, you know, it might be a little cliche or corny, but I love it so much, especially, I mean, I'm out of New York now, but especially when I was living in New York, uh, this kind of anthem of what it means to be country. Uh, country is, country is living in the city, but knowing your people and knowing your kind country is what you'll make it country is all in your mind. Country is working for a living, thinking your own thoughts while loving your town. Um, and yeah, so anyways, Tom T Hall is, is a great one. He's still around today. Um, he's uh, but he, he retired from music in the early nineties. So he's just sort of hanging out and living his best life and cheers to him. Hope he's having a good one tonight. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. That's I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate it. This is the uh, I, I should uh, I should say this is the last uh, regular episode uh, we're doing um, we're doing this year. Uh, where next 
you know, if you're watching this on Monday, uh, next Monday, the, uh, the 28th, uh, they're, um, just going to play the, uh, the Sopranos, uh, the second, uh, Sopranos recap bonus episode, uh, at the, uh, at the usual, at the usual Monday time slot. And, uh, and then we'll be, uh, be back, uh, the, uh, the week after, um, you know, the first week of uh, first Monday of January, uh, at which point uh, there are going to be various format changes. It's uh, it's going to be same time slot, 730 Eastern, but it's going to be live. Uh, producer, you know, Forrest is, uh, is is going to have a little bit more uh, of a uh, of an on air role. We're going to uh, going to do a weekly uh, patron uh, patron bonus episodes, probably call them something cheesy, like give them more. Uh, and uh and it's all really good and really exciting and, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, uh, and yeah, I just want to say, um, you know, thank you, brother. This has been like, you know, I, I think in the first, uh, you know, GTAA year one, uh, and, uh, in, in 2020, I mean, obviously, you know, things started in, in all sorts of ways. We don't have to recap now rough circumstances, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, I, I think that, I think these first, you know, these first 19 episodes, you know, have, have been a good time and you've been a huge part of that. Well, thank you so much, man. I'm so proud of, uh, you know, all the work you're doing over here and it's been really beautiful to watch. All right. All right. Thanks, David. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later. And with that, I am going to uh, to sign off. That uh, Sopranos recap episode that I just mentioned uh, is is pre recorded, so that's already that's already in the bag. Uh, getting you know, patrons will probably get that tomorrow um, or the next day at the latest. Uh, but uh, everybody else is going to get it on the twenty eighth, so that's going to premiere at the usual time slot. And then, like I was just saying, uh, to our comrade David Griscom. Um, we are going to be back with the new format the first Monday of, uh, of January. So if you want to want to support us in all this, please do consider becoming a patron uh, for uh, for five bucks a month. Uh, you will get uh, started in January. The benefits are changing, of course, you know, instead of getting early access to the episodes, uh, you, you'll get these weekly uh, given more uh, patron bonus episodes uh, and you'll continue to get existing benefits like uh, the access to the Discord, you know, it's basically a discussion forum and the uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats. We've been doing a few times a month. Uh, and and most of all, I mean, I think not to be too cheesy about this, um, you know, I, I think you, you get to support, you know, something that I, I think could be could be really good. I think it's already been really good. And I think it's going to be I think it's going to get a lot better. And, and obviously, you know, I, I guess as a kind of closing thought for, uh, for 2020, I just want to say that, you know, um, when, uh, you know, when this show started, um, you know, it, it started when I was still in shock, uh, from, um, from the death of, um, of my good friend, Michael Brooks. And, and obviously of course, you know, the pandemic's going on, you know, which was the whole thing was just kind of a, a summer of, uh, of horrible things for me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, but it also, this sort of confluence of all those horrible things also made me think a lot more about, about what I want to do with my life and, and how I want to, you know, kind of continue the work that I started to do with Michael, you know, when the, when the Michael Brooks show still existed and I was doing those weekly debunks and, and how I could maybe take that into a new form. 
Um, and you know, and it was, it was, it was very galvanizing in terms of thinking about all those things. So, um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I'll just, I'll just say, you know, this is, you know, everything uh, that, that I do is, is very much in, uh, in Michael's memory, including the fact that, uh, that I always sign off this way. So left is best. <laughs>